What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revived Thoughts. It is, in fact, often misunderstood. All learning is not designed to increase skepticism. There is still such a thing as reverent scholarship. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. The address we're hearing is entitled Preaching and Scholarship. It was delivered by A.T. Robertson in the year 1890. And don't let the name, Joel, scare you away from preaching and scholarship. It's just an older title. I think if he named it something different today, it'd probably something be like, what's the point of seminary? Do we need seminary? Something like that. Um, it, it is a good sermon. It, it, it definitely carries through. So I, wor- I do worry sometimes that the titles scare people away. When you put something like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, some people go, oh, that's a little angry. I don't know if I want to touch that. Uh, but one thing I'm always surprised by on Revive Thoughts is how many different ways you can preach and be effective and how there is not one style that God has has historically used. And there may be like some common elements, I think like not compromising on the truth and being courageous and kind of going to the heart of the matter with people and being very firm in what you believe. I think those things count. But there are so many different ways you can do that. You know, you can be imaginative. You can use stories and weave these really great illustrations together. You can just be almost grammatical, like a school teacher, right through the text. There are just all these different styles people have used, and yet they were all considered really great preachers. Their congregations loved them, and they learned from them during their time. And that's when I originally started Revive Thoughts. That's not really what I thought. I assumed there was going to be one way of doing things, and that would be what we'd find over and over again. And you know, episodes like this prove to us there is not just one way. There's God uses several different ways of preaching to hit his people and his congregations. Yeah, Archibald Thomas Robertson, also known as A.T. Robertson, was born in Virginia, 1863. And he was born to a plantation owner in 1865 when the Civil War was over. Their family moved to a small farm in North Carolina. His family was Baptist, and the church that they went to in this small Baptist town was led by A.C. Dixon. He was a pastor that would find himself taking over Spurgeon's church after Spurgeon died. He filled that pulpit and and held it down until Spurgeon's son uh, was able to take over that church. It's kind of an interesting, that could be a whole episode on its own or a whole story on its own, this small town Baptist preacher that uh, would, would go and cover the pulpit of one of the largest churches in the world. That's interesting. 
A.T. Robertson, though, himself, he was baptized at this little church when he was 12 years old. And when he was 16, he went to college, even though he never graduated high school, technically. He didn't have a high school degree, uh, but I guess in that day, you could could still go to college without the high school degree. The lack of that high school diploma, though, wasn't indicative of his smarts. He was very good at at college. He got great grades. Uh, He found himself needing to pay bills, though good grades don't pay bills. When he decided to go to seminary, he had to figure out a way. He had to figure out a job. How am I going to pay for this? Very few people in the South at this time were going to higher education, and a lot of that was due just to, to lack of money. But he managed to do so well in school at Southern Baptist Theological Seminaries where he went that he caught the attention of one of the people kind of running the school at the time, one of the big names, John Broadus. And we have done an episode on John Broadus, Lessons for the Tempted. Uh, we put that, I put that episode, that sermon, as one of my top uh, 10 episodes for 2020 list. It's a really good practical advice episode on how to deal with temptation. And Broadus quite liked Robertson, saw him as intelligent, wanted to help him, so he kind of promoted him, got him a job, helped him to get pay his bills, and got him through Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, they would work together, and eventually Robertson married his daughter, Ella. So, you know, John would become his father-in-law. And Ella and him would have five kids together. Ella was a prolific ministry partner. She would actually write books of her own as they got older. She wrote uh, Women in Ministry was probably her most famous one. But So she was right there in the ministry working alongside him. When John Broadus died, Robertson took over his position of teaching New Testament and Greek at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he would uh, have that position for 39 years. That's a really long time. Uh, when we did an episode on Charles Hodge, who had been at Princeton, I think it was for 50 years, you just you think about how many students and people, how much changes in 40 or 50 years, and how many people a professor can see in that time. And if each of those, you know, even half of those students go on to be pastors, missionaries, or start churches, or whatever it is they do, you're influencing all those congregations and stuff that come after. So sometimes, you know, we look at these names and we see them jump from place to place and become really big. But sometimes it's the guy who just sits in one spot and just stays faithful at what he's doing that has the biggest impact in the long run. And as a a teacher, he really loved his students. They said that he was known for taking that arrogant walk out of the students that came in. One quote uh, that has kind of lived throughout the years is that he said there are so many young Spurgeons but so few of them grow up. He wanted to see these Spurgeons grow up and love the Word of God most. He would go on to publish many books and also help found the Baptist World Alliance. This was an ecumenical group that tried to bring the Baptists back together. Early on he also joined in on D.L. Moody's campaign that encouraged him to become a better soul winner. And this gave him a heart for evangelism that, that seems to have kept with him the, the rest of his life. In the later days, he would team up with F.B. Myers to teach to thousands of preachers that would come to their conferences. His biggest work that he would write, you know, we said he published books, but he had one book. It was called, and this name, it, I know it's going to make you want to go buy it right now, A Grammar of the Greek, Greek New Testament in the Light of Historical Research. And if you're not pulling out your, you know, your Kindle to, to order that one as fast as you can, you're, you're missing out. I, I, okay, it's kind of a, a long uh, book title name. And it was also a long book. It was 1,400 pages. The manuscript itself, when he turned it into the publisher, was three feet tall, standing on top of itself. So it was huge, absolutely gigantic book. But everyone, everyone loved it. 
Baptists bought it, Presbyterians wanted it, even the Pope, 50 years later, a gentleman ran into the Pope, saw him with that book and said, what are you doing with that? That's, you know, that's coming from the Baptist. And he said, hey. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Pope said to him, it was the best book on the Greek of that time that he had. Why? What else? What other book would he use, basically? So this book was very, very, very popular. But he had no idea it was going to be so popular. And you're turning a three-foot manuscript. You're hoping people will like it, but you don't know. He was so uncertain, he had to borrow money against his own life insurance. He took out a second mortgage on his home to finance this book. Um, when E.Y. Mullins, who was president of the seminary at the time, heard what was going on, he actually pulled out $10,000 from the endowment of the seminary to kind of cover publishing this book. It was a really big risk. You know, was anyone going to buy this 1400 gigantic, you know, scholarly tome on Greek in the New Testament with a name like that? Yet they went for it, and the book was a roaring success. I mean, I'm not saying that kids lined up everywhere to buy it like Sherlock Holmes, but when it comes to the scholarship world and when it comes to seminaries and people reading the New Testament in Greek, they had to have this book. And it's still used today, in fact. Uh, this book was a roaring success and just reached lots of people. Despite that, he never seemed to seek self-promotion. He never really made it about him. Um, even though people knew who wrote it, he didn't like go on to do book tours or anything like that to make a big name for himself. He was not that guy. Uh, he famously, at the end of his life, you know, he was about 70, and he came to school one day. He was sweating. Um, he was not looking too good. And students noticed that he wasn't looking too good. It kind of became rumor around town. Man, Mr. Robertson, he's not looking good today. And he sent his class home early, and that was so shocking to people that an aide that was teaching another class left that class to help him get home because everyone was very worried about him. And by the end of the night, he had had a stroke and he died. And people said they weren't surprised, I mean, they, they were not shocked that he was beginning the stroke while teaching because that's just who he was, always teaching, always loving his students. One student at the time was asked what they thought about his passing. You know, what does that mean for you at the seminary? And he said, had a storm come in and blew away the school this morning, but left Mr. Robertson, this school would still feel more like the way it used to than having the school still here, but having him gone. It just didn't feel like the same school. And our episode on John brought us, if you haven't listened to it, go listen to it. And if you do remember it, um, you'll remember that we point out that John brought us said, I'm willing to give up everything. Like if, if Southern Baptist Theological Seminary goes down, we're all going to go down and starve with it, basically. basically. And yet the school survived and became a light for Christians at the time. And you kind of see here in Robertson, the completion of that work, you know, his father and the son-in-law that he had here, he kind of finishes that book. He writes the scholarship that gets Southern Baptist Theological Seminary kind of on the map. And when he dies, the whole school is just in shock, and, and yet everything is moving forward. This school is becoming the seminary that it would eventually become. And, and his goal, Robertson's goal above all else, was to bring scholarship, well-read books, making the, the, the Southern Baptist movement, you know, an intelligent book reading group of people who knew how to answer the critics and the things going on at their time. Yeah, so in this address that we're about to listen to, we hear that heart for scholarship and for study, his desire to see preachers be intelligent men who can deal with the issues 
of their day was the motivation behind all that he did. The relationship that scholarship has on preaching is, I fear, not always understood. It is in fact often misunderstood. For real growth and scholarship, far from being a help to preaching, are sometimes supposed to be a hindrance. And if a man happens to like books, it is by some people doubted whether he will ever be a successful preacher. It is strongly suspected that he will become a bookworm and lose all sympathy with the people, and hence all warmth and power in his preaching. Reading Greek and preaching are often thought to be enemies rather than companions. An eldership was once examining a young minister for ordination, and he was asked what he would do if he did not succeed as a preacher. He at once replied that he would try to get a place as theological professor. He evidently thought that failed preachers were good enough to teach others how to preach. There exists a half-suppressed feeling among many good people that much learning is not good for a preacher. And this feeling is not always suppressed, but finds expression in various insinuations aimed at educated ministers and the schools they attended. Some people, having heard that a little learning is a dangerous thing, conclude that much learning is even more dangerous, and so they would limit the much to a very small amount, and so do many preachers. A tender fear is entertained that the young minister will become heretical if he knows too much. And so he may, if he studies heresies with heretics. But all learning is not designed to increase skepticism. There is still such a thing as reverent scholarship. Surely, infidelity and rationalism have not absorbed all the knowledge that is out there. It is even sometimes predicted that the preachers will become too learned, too high learned, if they go to school too much. A fear, I am persuaded, based on limited real knowledge of mere theological students. There is some warrant to the caution. Your much learning, my brother, has not made you mad nor anyone else. Such cases do occur where a man becomes top-heavy with supposed knowledge, but they are very rare, and is usually when one is not deeply rooted in the faith or is lacking in spiritual power. True knowledge comes so hard that it will serve to keep you humble and all you can digest will not hurt you, Provided, of course, that you do not run after knowledge falsely so-called, but seek the real knowledge of God's truth. The schools get too much credit. Not every preacher that is spoiled, you may be sure, is spoiled by an excess of learning. Do not believe it. If an education gives a man the swell head, he must have a very soft head in the first place. It is amazing how little it takes to turn some people's heads. You sometimes hear it said that a theological education will make the minister dry. Perhaps it is thought that much learning will make him dull, if not mad. There are many men who never went to school that can be as dry as most learned. An education will not make a fountain in a desert, and if it does, it will be an artificial one anyway. It will only run when forced. A prominent man once admonished a student who was going to a theological seminary as follows. Don't lose your juice, he said, when you go to the seminary. He seemed to think a seminary was a drying machine to fry all the life out of a man and leave him all starch and powder. 
If by juice is meant the passion and fervor of a soul set on fire by the Spirit of God, it is hard to see why biblical study should have such an effect. Why can't the Holy Spirit work through a man that has learning just as well as through one that has none? Does God put a premium on ignorance in the ministry? Does God prefer people who have no training? We know that He has no use for the pride of learning. But neither does He care for the arrogance of ignorance. Certainly, ignorance and laziness are no recommendations for a preacher. Does a man gain power by boasting that he has no book learning? If the spirit that stirs the soul is in a man, his preaching will not be dry or barren of results, even if he has tried to read books. Perhaps what is meant is that the educated preacher often becomes too theoretical and shoots over the heads of the congregation. He is so far above their level that it is all Greek to them. Now, no one has a right to use strange tongues in the pulpit. It does sometimes happen that sophisticated language comes from the pulpit, but this happens as often from the uneducated as from the educated preacher. For the best educated ministers with the best taste use the simplest language, but many people hold books and simplicity incompatible. A certain church heard that a theological professor and a DD was to preach to them for a while, and they had sad faces at such a combination coming to preach for them until they were told that even though he was a professor, he could preach. This shows the existence of this feeling just mentioned. It is gravely feared by some that young ministers will become an egghead in style if they go to theological school. A cut-and-dried preacher made to order out of a preacher factory is a board, and it's right that it is. But this is hardly a real objection to scholarly ministers, for if a man has so little force of character as to lose his individuality at school, he would lose it anywhere. If a man lapses into mental arrogance and unlearns how to speak to people, the school is not to blame, for the theological training will not create great sermons without his own native wit and hard work. Do not expect any amount of training to take the place of brains, work, and the grace of God. In fact, a glib sermon does little good anyhow. It must take root in the heart and life of the preacher if it is to reach the hearts of other people. If a numbskull comes to the seminary and goes away a numbskull, do not blame the seminary. For some men are hard to teach. Gideon taught the men of Succoth with thorns and whips, for it was the only kind of instruction that would penetrate their cloudy consciences. But thorns and briars cannot make preachers or scholars out of some men. A seminary can only work with the material that the churches send, good, bad, and indifferent. Training cannot make good speakers out of men with no gifts of speech, nor out of those with gifts if they do not apply themselves in practice. Some still insist that to spend two or three years at a seminary is a waste of time. You can do well enough without seminary training, it is urged. Is anything well enough save the absolute best of which you are capable? Some good brethren shook their heads when you started to school and lamented this waste of time from preaching. A good woman once told a young preacher that he could preach well enough without going to the seminary three years. But when he insisted that he must go, she said, Lord, if you can preach this well now, I just would like to hear you then. She, at any rate, had faith in the power of a seminary course to improve a preacher. Many young men listened to this silly flattery and failed to take a theological course or complete their college work. 
They even think their friends are about half right and that perhaps they are smarter than they at first supposed. Too smart to need seminary. It all depends on what you want to do. A character in Midsummer Night's Dream said that extempore or off-the-cuff speaking was nothing but roaring and that he could do that to perfection. Now, if you simply want to roar all your life, you can do that without much sense or even faith. But it is right for a man to look high and deep into the mission of his life. And the amount of preparation that is necessary for your life work is not to be decided by the urgency of the work alone. For Christ waited until he was 30 years old before he began his ministerial work. The demand for ministers is always greater than the supply. This will always be, no doubt. The harvest is always great and ready for reaping, but the laborers are few. There is great need for all who will put in the sickle, but greater need than ever for men that are well equipped and approved of God. No man these days should cut his preparation shorter than the line of duty indicates. For the two or three years subtracted from school life may not make up for the loss in power. And power is what is wanted in men today. The apparent loss in time will be more than atoned for by increased momentum and training for the work. The sum of a life's work is equal to time plus momentum. It is time and power. I saw this summer in the country, women and dogs pulling carts across the streets. I felt that I had gone back 500 years past the age of steam and electricity. The age compels you to live at a higher speed than the Amish. You must learn how to do this with the best results and the least harm to yourselves. If a theological education will increase your power for Christ, is it not your duty to gain that added power? If a higher dam will give more power to the mill, you are not bothered by how long it takes to build it. Never say you are losing time by going to school. You are saving time, buying it up for the future and storing it away. Time used in gaining power to do the work is not time lost. You reverently seek to know, not in pride, what you can do for God. If you have a high opinion of His service, your own insufficiency will lead you to larger and wiser preparation. So theological education saves time in enabling the pastor to come to his work with improved methods and applications. A man must work quickly and hard if he is to meet the demands made upon him. It is a great thing to be able to do well in two hours what used to take you three. Now, these are some of the current objections to theological education. Many young ministers feel this outside pressure and consider themselves justified in their inclination to make a dash here and a splash there and swim gloriously ahead. They may regret all their lives that they did not stay longer at school. If it were only some stray brethren here and there that shy at young upstarts from the schools and shake their heads dubious at some high lark preachers of doubtful behavior, it would not be worth it to waste words about the value of an educated ministry. The matter, however, is of a more serious nature than this. With us in the South, theological education is comparatively new and has had to remain new to great masses of our people on account of the trying circumstances through which we have passed in the last third of a century. But the denomination is seeing the need for such instruction as is offered here, and there is an increase in desire among our young ministers to avail themselves of the opportunities of the seminary. It is to accelerate this desire that I now speak. 
for there are still many that refuse to see the importance of theological study. They are not to be blamed too much, for one rarely rises above the cultural standards around him. In such cases, few of one's friends may have gone to the seminary, and those that did may not have been very good examples of the educated preacher. And these specimens with some arrogance and much obvious ignorance still, in spite of a few months in a seminary, have not helped to remove the prejudice against learning that lingers as an heirloom of other days. And so it has come to pass that young men have often had to go to college and seminary against the prejudice and advice of their best friends. For there has always been opposition to educated ministers based partly on inherited prejudices and partly on the indiscretions of a few men of bad taste and small learning. I said that prejudice against theological education was a relic of other days. Do not understand me to say that all the old Baptist preachers in our part of the world were unlettered men, nor that most of them were. At least they did not remain so forever. Many of them were college men and earnest advocates of education, and others still that were far from any school, save the old farmhouse school that ran a few months only, they struggle mightily to obtain even a little education and ought to bring shame to every young man that is too ambitious to go to school or too lazy to work after he gets there. There were men like Lewis Lunsford of Virginia that plowed all day and studied by the light of a pine candle at night and then would preach on Sunday sermons that you and I can never equal. But it is so easy now to go to school with our boards to help and our numerous and excellent schools that we may not all appreciate the value of such opportunities. A man is beneath contempt who plays around with such advantages today. I have no respect for a man who receives more help from an educational board than he actually needs. For those who yearn for the chances you have, I feel the deepest sympathy. Nothing stirs me more than to see a noble young man striving against great obstacles to obtain an education with which to glorify God and to serve mankind. And so this subject makes me sad. I think of the thousands of young ministers scattered over the South and West trying to train themselves to preach the gospel, and many of them get no guidance from pastor or friends. They never go to school, but do the best they can. God bless them and help them. Much of the work of our denomination has been done by men like them. They deserve high praise for what they have achieved. They would go to school if someone showed sufficient interest in them to suggest how they might get an education. The yearning faces of these struggling men make a strong appeal to all friends of Christian education. I remember the life and death of James P. Boyce, how he toiled and died that these very men might have a place to find theological instruction. They need their attention called to the subject, for they do not comprehend what such training will do for them. And then they are very poor and need wise financial help. Some are flattered into going to work at once because of their remarkable powers. Others get married and never come back. One young minister went to college one year and tried to marry a widow's daughter. Failing in this ambition, he married the widow herself and quit school. Some of the popular objections against theological education have been shown in order to point out that it is not a mere man of straw that I was fighting. And since so many complaints of a similar nature are made, it is not simply commonplace to insist that there is no real conflict between scholarship and preaching. It is entirely possible for a man to be a respectable scholar and still be able to preach. 
When scholarship is spoken of, a skeptical scholar is not meant, but simply that a degree of learning that comes as a result of a college and seminary course with diligent study afterwards. The question is simply this. Is the average man with these qualifications, other things being equal, better prepared to preach than without them? In other words, does college and seminary training tend to make better preachers? If not, it is a failure. The German school tends to make scholars first and preachers if it suits them. But ours is to make preachers and scholars only as a means to that end. We have little need in the pulpit for men that can talk scholarly and obscurely about the tendencies of thought and the trend of philosophy, but do not know how to preach Christ and Him crucified. The most essential thing today is not to know what German scholars think of the Bible, but to be able to tell men what the Bible says about themselves. And if our system of theological training fails to make preachers, it falls short of the object for which it was established. But if it does meet the object of its creation, it calls for hearty sympathy and support. Now, all scholars cannot preach. No such claim is made. Not every man with a taste for books has the popular gifts necessary to make him a public speaker. Certainly, there is ample room for American Christian scholars that cannot preach. They are not slaves of the past, as is Rome, nor despisers of the past, as is the German school. But with due reverence for the past and yet with sufficient independence for accurate work, American scholars occupy a unique position for the best and soundest results. And we need such men to preserve the equilibrium of scholarship. For all scholars are not Christian, but godless men invade the domain of Christian doctrine and presume to pass judgment on the oracles of God. But my plea is for a scholarship that helps men to preach. For after all, the great need of the world is the preaching of the gospel, not saying off a sermon, but preaching that stirs sinful hearts to repentance and godliness. Our complex civilization has made more difficult and more necessary the task of the preacher. For a highly refined culture that breeds itching ears has turned many away from the old message to tickle those diseased ears with softer sounds. They worship the golden calf as Jehovah and proclaim a feast to the Lord. Give us men in the pulpit today above all things that fear God and think the gospel good enough for anybody and make no apology for preaching it. The preacher must be bold, not with a zeal above knowledge. In a time of countless heresies that have sprung from distortions of the Bible, there is need of keen intellects and honest hearts to divide the word of truth. It takes a sharp blade to cut asunder God's work with no injury to either part. But while there is great need for the best and soundest scholarship irrespective of preaching, it is certainly true that learning will not make a preacher. It is equally true that knowledge does not necessarily prevent one from being a good minister of Jesus Christ, but helps him to preach. For it is not historical or theoretical sermons or political sermons that shake the souls of men. Nothing save the gospel of Christ can do that, and this man we are not preaching. For it is not too much of learning, but lack of religion, that leads men into such ways as these. They did not preach Christ, but shook in the faces of the people of the skeleton of dead theology, or held up for their worship a new Christ that none has ever known, for he had not the marks nor the power of the old Christ. It is scholasticism on the one hand and politics on the other, neither of which will ever regenerate the world. 
Do not take up the dry bones of scholasticism and shake them in the faces of the friends of theological education today. If the Spirit does not breathe upon the bones, they are dead and will rattle in the pulpit where the power of the living Christ should be. And no amount of learning will make a preacher unless he is filled with zeal from on high. He may quote poetry and Latin and cite authorities by the score, but his preaching will never result in the conversion of a soul. Moreover, all preachers cannot become scholars. Some men who can preach grandly and powerfully have no great gifts with books. They cannot become learned, yet they have so learned Christ and have such deep spiritual knowledge that they can preach gloriously. God is not bound by ironclad rules in using men. He is not dependent on the works of human attainment for the proclamation of his word. Although he freely uses all such acquirements for the promotion of his glory, he does not put men into a factory and turn them all out with the same brand. Ministers are not all cut according to the same pattern. And the glory of the Baptist ministry is its diversity and versatility. Composed of all classes of men with different talents and accomplishments, it can easily become all things to all men. But our educational system has no such formal tendency as is sometimes thought, for it takes men just as it finds them, with little or much preparation for theological instruction, and seeks to make the most out of each one. His own individuality is intensified, and he should become a man of personal force. As there is diversity of gifts, there should be diversity in preparation. No one has a right to say that you must go to school so many years before you will be allowed to preach the gospel. You cannot conceive of the Apostle Paul saying that a man must go to Jerusalem to school before he could become a preacher or missionary. Such a principle is not baptistic, not apostolic. Let there be liberty and let duty and not compulsion regulate the amount of preparation for the ministry in each case. It is not a question of shortcut or long cut by the wholesaler. Each man must make it a personal matter and settle it in the light of his duty to God and men. And if every man takes what he is or can be prepared for, he will not go far wrong. The clergyman used to have almost a monopoly of learning in the old times when he was the clerk or school teacher of the nobility. But nobles and peasants are able to write their own names now, and the clergyman is no longer the embodiment of the knowledge of the day. In truth, he has a hard time keeping up with much of the new learning. Will the seminary fall behind or keep to the front in intellectual force and attainments? If you were to have any power as a minister, people must have confidence in your character, and your requirements must match with your professions. You cannot hoodwink people by twists and beatings of the air. If you say nothing all the time, they will know it and will let you know it. An editor complimenting the preacher said, Your sermon did not seem long, for after you had spoken an hour, it didn't seem that you had said anything. The only way to avoid saying nothing is to draw deep from the fountain of spiritual knowledge. And people do not want a simpleton to preach to them. You must have common sense, whether you ever heard of a college or not. And some preachers that never saw a seminary have more sense than you or I can ever have. They were born with one talent, but they used it instead of wrapping it up in a napkin. If you are too dainty to touch sinners with your delicate fingers, you had better quit preaching. Now, a busy pastor cannot become a specialist. He has to leave that for other men. 
if he is to finish the work laid upon him. He can do scholarly work on his sermon, but cannot branch off much, for he is a man of affairs and must know the hearts of men. And few have the time, and fewer still the taste for detailed scholarship. This is not contended for. Let a man acquire scholarly methods and apply them to his work, and that work will be less slipshod in style and more effective in results. So all preachers cannot be scholars. But do not be afraid that you will learn too much, for your seminary courses will not make you a scholar. You will be a long way still from any such good. There will seem to be more for you to learn when you leave than when you came. You will know less about Cain's wife than you do now. But you will have more rapid and effective methods of sermonizing, clearer ideas of biblical study, and juster conceptions of scriptural exegesis and doctrine and the relation of Christianity to the history and wants of men. And these are the main things that you need to get from a theological education. But woe to you if you are so wild as to think that these results will come ready-made and drop at your touch. There is a long road of toil and sweat if you wish to accomplish much. And true education is never finished, and a finished education is of little use. John Richard Green said, I die learning. For an education is more the ability to grapple with the present than mere knowledge of the past. The dry preachers are those that learned it all long ago and have relied on that little ever since. There is plenty of fresh truth in the Bible to water your soul, if you'll find it. And the oldest will be the freshest, if you get below the surface of superficial meaning that your ears may have become used to. For there will be life and power in the words then. Gladstone says, I have been a learner all my life, and am a learner still. Whether you keep your Greek and Hebrew or not, as you ought to if possible, you must be continually expanding your sphere of knowledge in one or more directions, and so gaining new power. He alone has fresh power who does fresh work. A man can have a scholarly method of work and not be scholastic. What is wanted is the mill to grind the corn, whether it be by steam or water or hand, the corn must be ground. God's truth must be needed well in the mind and heart of the preacher, if it is to be adapted to the wants of his audience. He must not make the truth bleed by rough handling, and so destroy the right proportion that one truth sustains to another. This is the function of scholarship and preaching. It is mechanical, perhaps, and yet in this age of mechanism we see the importance of having the right kind of machinery. But there is no virtue in a dead machine. It needs the fire to give motion and power. The wire is of no service, save when charged with electricity. It is the electricity that is needed. Away with the scholarship and the preacher that refuses to be the vehicle for the Spirit and Word of God, but is laden rather with the thoughts and foolishness of men. This is over-education or too much of the wrong type. Some men go to school too long. You can rub all the edge off of some blades, but they are thin blades. If you are a thin blade, do not grind all your edge away. This then is true. Not all scholars can preach, and not all preachers can become scholars. There are varying degrees of both, but the best preachers have generally been men of the best training in the schools. This is all that can be said, and it is enough. For each man wants to do the most that is in him for the glory of God. The leading examples of preaching will confirm this statement. Paul was an educated man, and so was John Chrysostom, the golden-mouthed preacher of later days. 
Luther was a theological professor. Calvin preached every day for a long time while professor of theology at Geneva. John Knox learned Greek and Hebrew between the ages of 40 and 50. Whitfield and Wesley, the great popular preachers, were Oxford men. The famous French preachers, Bousset, Bourdaloue, and Massillon were likewise scholarly men, and the exceptions usually proved the rule, for even Spurgeon has made a respectable scholar of himself in spite of the lack of early training. Incidental cases here and there do not alter the general fact that the best and foremost preachers of Christendom have been not simply men of the largest gifts of mind and heart, but likewise of the most thorough training their times could give for their work. Given the grace of God in a man's heart and natural parts, and he will be a better preacher if he pursues the study of God's word with a sound and reverent scholarship. And so the whole question of theological education amounts to this. Is a man better fitted to preach, other things being equal, with a working amount of scholarship or without it? For it is not the amount of education that is necessary for a professor that the preacher needs, but enough that can be brought to bear upon the exposition of Scripture. This is the question that every young minister has to face. It is not whether you can preach well enough now to satisfy Deacon Jones or Sister Brown, but whether your usefulness for life will be enhanced by a college and seminary course. If this is true, it becomes a matter of duty, and a thoughtful man will be slow to cut short his usefulness by a shortcut or any other means that will give him the shadow instead of the substance of an education. But each man will seek to adjust his preparation to his capabilities and circumstances. With the question stated, one needs to be slow in refusing to get hold of this apparatus for biblical study that comes from a course of theological training. But some people have strange notions about preaching. They seem to think that the operation of natural laws does not apply to the preparation and delivery of a sermon. It is as if a prophetic inspiration swept down upon the preacher and suspended the working of his mind. Now, the minister should seek and expect divine help both in the preparation and delivery of a sermon. But it is not reverence to look for the divine blessing upon wild impromptu ravings more than upon the sober reflections of a thoughtful mind drawn from the word of God and the promptings of a heart full of the deepest Christian experience. And if such people half believe the preacher inspired in the manner of his message, they certainly do not act as if they believe the inspiration binding on their lives. But the highest excellence is where reverent learning is united with great pulpit ability and deep integrity. For full preparation is apt to make a man careful about fanciful interpretations of Scripture. He will not so readily make a hop, skip, and jump to remarkable conclusions. And real knowledge should keep the preacher from the pride of unconsecrated scholarship and the presumption of ignorance. The true minister of the word will seek not to dazzle, but to enlighten. And the Bible will become clear to him by deep study and earnest seeking of the Holy Spirit. His learning will result and not mere theoretical speculation, but an effort to unfold the scriptures and make them plain. Here I contend that the best overall results are to be obtained by the regular system of college and theological training with flexibility enough to meet all cases. And this flexibility, the elective system best affords. A course in systematic theology should precede swamp theology, as a friend of mine terms missionary work in the swamps of North Carolina. The swamp theology will be all the better after the systematic training. 
For if a man is to preach, he must be able to think. Right education should lead to this result and make more than a parrot out of a man. That is the best training that makes a man the best thinker and enables him to have the best use of himself and to bring all his powers to bear upon a given pursuit. For thinking is hard work with the ablest of men. What the world needs today is men that can think clearly and speak strongly so as to make the truth felt. That can put wings to the seeds of truth, to use Homer's idea, which will catch hold in dry soil. He is wise who knows how to put the best bait on hooks that will catch the hearts of men. And if a man has learned how to think, he will not have to be poring over books all the time to get ideas. He will get them there, but also from the men he meets and everything he sees. The world will be an open book to him. But simply going to school will not make a man of you. Hanging around a college or seminary for a few or even many years will not make you a scholar nor a preacher. And the inertia of ignorance that clings to you there will cling to you still. I make no apology for such greenhorns who imagine that mere attendance in a theological seminary will give them a patent right to success by some sudden process that involves little effort on their part. What prestige without power you might acquire will melt away so rapidly in the heat of earnest work that you will wonder where your little learning is gone. You will be left so far behind in real work in the cause of Christ. Such men are not spoiled by an education. They did not get enough to leave a trace. They spoiled before they got any. You will never become a preacher worth listening to without the travail of your soul. There has to be some severe thinking and suffering before you will command the ears and hearts of men. Mere dabbling in books will not make you a deeper man. But if you get a studious habit upon you, it will help you to go to the bottom of things. No, do not hinder any honest preaching from becoming a scholarly man, if you can. It will not hurt him, but will help him, if he be a man. And if he is not a man, it will not make much difference whether he knows much or little. For if he will be puffed up because he has the good fortune to go to school, perhaps he will be made vain by looking in the glass and with his little ground for it, or have his head turned by the squawks of flatterers. If a preacher has faith, learning ought not to and will not chill his passion when tempered by the grace of God. Unspiritual scholars can never become preachers. God deliver us from a set of schoolmen who simply squabble over how many angels can stand on the point of a needle and neglect the weightier matters of the gospel. May the chilling poison of godless learning never fall upon our schools. God forbid that our American schools should ever become places where pupils and teachers merely rummage among the cowbells of the past just to find the spiders. The educated preacher needs to be a man. You cannot put clothes on a dead man and breathe life into him by education. It is necessary to have a live man to start with, a man with grit and purpose. Some men never get over their childish foibles and play at games of chance their whole life. Life is a chance and has no purpose with them. A dilly-dallying man has no business in the ministry. He would be better off playing cornhole for a living. Eloquence must not come at the expense of power. And why should it? The shining blade can never be sharp and strong. Let a man retain his manhood and vitality along with his scholarship. For pale-faced, jaded scholars make a poor show beside vigorous, manly men with plenty of faith but less learning. Christian education should not emasculate the ministry, but develop a sturdier type of man with a larger and firmer mental grasp. The phrase, gentlemen of the cloth, is not a good expression. It is always repulsive to my conception of a minister of Jesus Christ.
A preacher is not a gentleman of cloth and ease, but a man of work and sturdy manliness and rugged virtue, anything but fat and sleek. He should be more like John the Baptist with his cloth of camel's hair and his homely message of repentance than like the Pharisee with his soft robes and softer speeches for the people. If a man is not willing to work, he has small business preaching the gospel, whether he ever goes to school or not. Most people believe that it is a good thing to get a little education, a first dash to get a start in life. But to make an honest effort to know things is not so popular. It is for this that a plea is made, that our young ministers may become strong in character and attainments. And this is not simply a matter of natural talent, but largely of slow and labor tool. It takes patience to get an education and to become a preacher. The churches clamor for fresh preaching and often will not let the preacher stay at school long enough to learn how to study and to think. Two very important items in the preparation of a sermon. What can a preacher do if he has not learned how to think? When his stock of ideas is exhausted, he will have to seek new flocks, for the churches are unreasonably intolerant as to the repetition of old ideas. You might get someone else to do your thinking for you, but that is a rather humiliating business, unless it is your wife. Some people pay for their thinking as they do for their clothes, only not as much, for it takes less to think for them than to clothe them. But the unhappy preacher must work his brain or change his career. Yet you do not want him to get his thinking machinery into good work and order. Young preachers' brains are in no better condition than other people's and need a deal of rubbing to get them into good trim. Ask these theological teachers of many years' experience. They could tell you volumes that they have or have not found within young preachers' heads. So a minister, if he is to last, must be ready in resources. A few sermons at first will represent the topsoil. The deep subsoil of his nature must be stirred if his mind is to be fruitful. Greek and Hebrew roots may be tough and may jar a little in the breaking, but break them, it will pay off. You will get deeper down when they are cleared out of the way, and the harvest will be larger and richer. A man should never be satisfied to give the scum of his thoughts that float on the surface. Stir up the depths. Let God's truth sink and settle in the depths of your soul. Dislike of theological study is often the expression of laziness, the plea that is made of sturdy mentality, trained to think, whose minds will drink at the fountains of knowledge, and the Bible is the best fountain. Go to school if you can and as long as you should. If you cannot go a long time, go a short time. It is better to preach with one year at school than with none, and it is better, a thousand times better, to preach with no education at all than that the glorious gospel of Christ should not be given to the world. If our colleges and seminaries make a hedge around the ministry that the gospel cannot be given to the perishing thousands, they will have lost their mission among men. Let the gospel be preached, though seminaries fall. Let men be fitted to preach in the way best suited to the times and in accordance with the spirit of Christianity. Right now, this way seems to line the existing institutions of the denomination. In these institutions, is supplied ample training for our ministers if they avail themselves of all that is within their power. If you cannot take the best, take the best you can, for so the demands of Christian work among us as a denomination will be best met. Let each one do his duty in this matter in the fear of God. I am persuaded that a larger number than ever before are seeing the importance of the widest preparation for the great and exalted work of the gospel ministry. This hope will meet fulfillment in the freest discussion of this great subject. For the proper education of the rising ministry is a matter that lies close to the hearts of our wisest men and is worthy of the most serious consideration. 
Let all that is said and done for the solution of the grave problems that affect theological education be with a breadth of mind and earnestness of purpose worthy of the dignity of the subject. Let us all seek to gain just views as to the training of the men who are to be the preachers of the future. And let us all sustain all wise plans for the promotion of biblical knowledge among the men who are to interpret the scriptures to the churches and pray that they may do it with the demonstration and power of the Spirit. But let the gospel be preached, whatever we do or think, or else the very stones will cry out and give glory to God if we refuse to give him praise for his wonderful redemption. In the course of time, prejudice against ministers that have had scholastic advantages will die away. It lies largely with those that have such advantages as to how soon this will be the case. If you conduct yourself discreetly and preach with greater power, men will bless God for such an institution that sent you to them. You may have heard the story of John Kerr, a wonderful preacher of a generation ago. When he came home from school, he was put up to preach. An old farmer at the outskirts of the congregation, with deep-rooted prejudice against high-learning preachers, said, That schoolboy can't preach. He pulled his hat over his eyes and determined not to listen. But by and by, he got a little interested and looked up. He soon leaned forward. After a while, he stood up. At last, he took off his hat and shouted, Bless God, he can preach. The educated preacher had overcome the prejudice of the farmer by doing the one thing, which is the end of all theological education. He could preach. And his preaching was all the clearer and more convincing because of the training he had gotten in the schools. But whether such prejudice ever wholly dies away or not, it becomes the duty of every young minister to prove himself superior to it and to lay hold of every opportunity that college and seminary afford to increase his power and efficiency as a minister of Jesus Christ. This address should encourage you to see theological education as important. And that doesn't mean we're here saying at Revive Studios that all seminaries are weighted equally. You know, there are seminaries that are bad that would be not worth it to go to. I think that's something that's changed since Robertson's days where he said, oh, you know, a seminary is still good. There are bad seminaries. That's something we would like to say that we don't recommend you go to all of them. At the same time, though, if you can go to school, and you're planning to be in ministry, it is a good thing. I think sometimes it gets a bad rap, and people say, oh, you know, what's the point of doing this? I think Robertson makes a good point that there is a really good reason. But even if you're not in ministry, or even if you're not planning to be a pastor, or a missionary, or a preacher, or whatever, you should still be educating yourself. You should still be reading books and trying to grow more in your knowledge of God, not losing your heart for God at the same time, but those two things working in tandem as you grow in your knowledge, growing in your love for God and turning that into praise and prayer and letting that affect your heart. I think that can make everyone a better Christian and we Christians should be well-read and able to answer the arguments and the criticisms of our time to the best of our abilities. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Justin Scott Ray. Justin Ray, always a pleasure to have on the show. He's the founder of the Sound and Worship website, soundandworship.com, the Facebook group and podcast that focuses on sound worship. He also has a website designed to point Christians to worship music from theologically sound sources. 
Yeah, Justin Ray, if you remember his name, you've heard him uh, maybe in our episode Samuel P. Jones, Quit Your Meanness, which is a favorite of mine, or E.Y. Mullen's uh, episode on a riot that was, he preached right after a riot happened in town to encourage people not to riot. So there's just a couple episodes. Um, if, you, if you've heard his voice, you might remember him from. Uh, and we really encourage you to check out Justin. Justin's been a big help to the show. And people are always, I, I'm, I, whenever I'm on social media, I think I, I see a post like this every day somewhere where someone says, you know what, where can I find good worship music? Or where can I find good Christian music? And that's literally what Justin does. He, he puts together playlists and stuff like that of music that people can enjoy. He runs a podcast where he talks about worship music. I mean, this is his bread and butter. So if you're one of those people who's out there looking for more Christian music or looking for new worship music or looking for solid sources of music, something you can play for the kids, I don't know what you're looking for, but go check out soundandworship.com. Go check his stuff out. All the links will be in the episode description, and we really hope that you'll go check his stuff out because I think you will find some really good stuff there. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals24. That's chime.com goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.